Hey, good morning, you guys. Good to see you. Welcome to Arbor. Um, <laughs> we're, I don't know if Allison's still in here. I, but that was it. Yeah, she's back there. <laughs> she's leaving now. Why do you know so much about Tinder? I thought you'd been married for like 30 years. This is weird. This is weird. So what, what just happened is that we have just ensured that none of you will ever fill out a connection card again. <laughs> Because we're going to be in a relation, a Tinder-type relationship. I don't know. I heard hookup. I don't know what that means. Anyhow, I don't know anything about it any, either. So um, welcome. If we've never met before, my name's Garrett. If this is your first time here, it only gets worse. So just, let's just right-size expectations from the beginning. Before I jump into what I'm going to be talking about today, um, I have a little family announcement. So um, Jack and Carol Warner, who you see up here pretty much every weekend, they were here this morning leading. In fact, they're right back there by the tech booth. You guys wave at us. Yeah, hi. Jack has the quippy responses to Allison while she's doing her dating service thing. Uh, <laughs> so you, some of you might see, have seen already because things travel fast on the internet, but they listed their house for sale a couple days ago, which could be cool, except their intent is to sell it and then move to Idaho. And that to me is not cool. I'm not happy about that. And so we're praying that they get lowball offers, that it sits for a really long time. <laughs> the very opposite of what I told them in the meeting earlier this morning. No, I mean, so it's bittersweet, right? It's, it's exciting. They really feel like God has woven a dream into their heart to uh, move and get more property. They're looking at moving to Idaho and, and getting a little more property and slowing life down a little bit and some really, some really cool stuff for them and their family. So we're really excited for you guys. At the same time, they've been here from the very, very, very beginning. They've built this team. They do this completely on a volunteer basis. They make me feel like a terrible human being because I can't get my kids out of the house before 11 o'clock in the morning. They have them here, all of them, all four of them here at 7 a.m. Sunday morning while they do uh, rehearsal. I mean, they're like superhuman. So they're incredible people. They leave way too big of shoes to fill, um, but they're transitioning, and so we have to try and fill it. And the great thing about the Warners is they have let Jake and I know this months and months and months in advance. So we've been able to talk with them and come up with a transition plan, and uh, we are talking to someone now. In fact, he was here leading worship a few weeks ago. You might have seen him. Um, and so the interesting thing is this guy lives in Idaho and wants to move here to Woodenville. <laughs> They live here in Bothell and are moving to Idaho. It's some weird, like God's in it somehow. So we'll talk more about that and the details of that. The timing is completely contingent on what the sale of their house looks like. But for now, first, we just wanted to keep you as a family all in the loop of what's going on. And second of all, I just wanted to do a good job thanking Jack and Kara for all they've done up to this point. So will you join me in thanking them? Thank you, you guys. We love you. Tani and I just moved, I don't know, three weeks ago, but um, for a few years, we were next door neighbors and hung out virtually never. So <laughs> it's us, not you. They actually invited us over all the time. They're really sweet. We're terrible people, which. Is he still talking? What's happening? No microphone, Jack. Okay, so, so. If you can remember to a few minutes back, there was a little uh, 
trailer of sorts. It said, what would Jesus undo? That's the name of the series we're in. We kicked it off last week. And it's centered around this thing that happened back in the 80s and 90s. You may remember it. People wore these bracelets that said WWJD. And it was supposed to act as a reminder to ask ourselves in various situations of our life, hey, in this circumstance, in this situation, what would Jesus do? That's what WWJD stood for. I think it's a really good question. But I think an equally important question is the question of what would Jesus undo? If he was here in our community today, if we had the opportunity to bring Jesus in as a guest speaker, I wonder if perhaps one of the things he would want to share with us as a community of people that self-identify as followers of his, that self-identify as Christians, if he'd want to say to us, hey, I love you guys, you're doing a good job, you got great hearts, but over time, from the time that you decided to follow me, put your trust in me, and now, you've crept a little bit away from relationship, which we had at the beginning, over into religion. And you've gotten used to certain things, certain routines in your life, and and the urgency isn't quite there anymore. And I think Jesus would want to undo some of the religion in our lives to get us back to a place of relationship with him. And so that's why we're in this series. Jake kicked it off last weekend with this idea of indifference, talking about if Jesus really is who he says he is and did what he claims he did, which is leave heaven, come here, live a perfect sinless life as a human, die on a cross to take our pain and our sins, it's called substitutionary atonement, die in our place, and ultimately defeat the grips of death by raising from the dead and back to heaven. If all of that is true, which those of us who self-identify as Christians, that's what we believe, if all of that is true, maybe our life should look a little bit different than just kind of this, eh, life's good, I'm going through it, I got work, I got stress, I got illness, I got, I got, I got, eh. If that story is true and Jesus has saved us from death and given us a hope for eternity that maybe our life would look a little bit different. And through that, not through our winsome personalities or our convincing speeches of what we believe and why, but just simply through the light that is within us that maybe the rest of the world would begin to take notice and look at that and go, I don't know what they got, but I'm interested in it. So that's how we kicked off with indifference. Today, we're gonna talk about pride. That if Jesus were here, he may have a message for us that he would want to undo spiritual pride in our life. And I say spiritual pride because I think when I say pride, most of us think of that quintessential jerk boss, kind of that narcissist that's my way or the highway is just this proud man, right? Or, um, and, and that's not what we're talking about today. We're also not talking about that sense of satisfaction that you experience within yourself when you achieve something really important, when you hit a major milestone in your life. If you have kids, that, that sense of pride that you have for them, like, man, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I tell my daughters all the time, I'm so proud of you. And I ask them, are you proud of yourself? Because I think that's important to have that sense of self-worth and, and excitement and understanding about who you are. But for today, the working definition for spiritual pride is going to be this. When we look inward instead of upward. When we find our purpose, our meaning inside ourselves rather than looking upward and finding our 
complete identity in Christ, in Christ alone. There's nothing wrong with being proud, that sense of pride in various parts of life. But the question is, do we look to ourselves or do we look upward toward heaven? So many years ago when I was, I think junior high, high school, I was eighth or ninth grade, a couple of my buddies, their families vacationed in Lake Chelan every summer. And they invited me to go along. And one of the goals of this trip was to teach me how to water ski. My family didn't own a boat. I'd never had the opportunity to water ski. So they were hoping to teach me how to water ski. So to Chelan we go and we get on the water. And uh, how many of you have ever tried to learn to water ski? Just show me your hands. Okay, a lot of you. If you, if, if you haven't, you've at least watched people try. And if you haven't, you've seen fail videos on YouTube of people trying to learn to water ski. So you think the main obstacle to overcome is getting up out of the water, right? Because the first 50 tries, you turn into a human torpedo and you just take in a lot of water through your nose and it's miserable. What I realized was the second obstacle was equally, if not more daunting than the first obstacle. Because the second obstacle was I got up out of the water, on top of the water, but then the boat was flying forward and my body was doing its darndest to hang on. So if you've seen it, this is the posture a beginner ski, water skier takes on. You're like this, your butt's back, your arms are forward, everything's shaking, your legs are going nuts. Your muscles are flexing in a way you never knew they could because their sole goal is to keep your forelimbs from being detached from the sockets they were created to reside in. Like your body is freaking out in this moment. And so here I am, I'm doing this thing and I'm trying to decide if it's even worth sticking with. Like I'm gonna bail and just swim back to the boat and like, all right, I got up, call it. But my buddies are in the boat and they're cheering for me and they're rooting me on and they're also totally making fun of me and somehow we keep going. Well, so we get done with, you know, making a couple rounds and I swim back to the boat and my buddies look at me and they're like, dude, how did you do that? I was like, how did, what are you talking about? How did I do what? They're like, well, you look like an idiot like every other beginner wa- beginning water skier, but then we went by that boat full of girls and you like tuck, propped right up, <laughs> stiff as a board, leaning back, looked like you had been doing this for years. I was like, no, like, come on, knock it off, you know? So they're like, dude, you did. So later on that day, we go water skiing again. I hop back in the water. Sure enough, we go by a boat full of teenage girls and my body miraculously snaps into this position and I look like a seasoned vet. And we keep cruising along and I'm like, well, man, this is kind of working for me. And we go by another boat and another boat and I've got this great form, but here's what's starting to happen. My balance is starting to have a major conversation with my pride. And it's like, dude, don't get too carried away because I'm getting tired over here. We can't keep this up very long. We go by boat number two, boat number three. By boat number four, my ego laid the smack down on my pride and said, enough's enough. And not only did I go back to assuming this position, but it's like my legs stopped and the rest of my body kept going forward. My face hit that water so hard. If you've ever experienced this, it feels like concrete. All 50 miles of Lake Chelan went up into my nose, down my throat, out my mouth. I'm coughing, I'm choking, I'm spitting, I'm sputtering. And I kind of like get, my, my, you know, get myself together and I hear about 10 feet away from me, this boat full of girls just howling, totally laughing and pointing at me. I'm devastated. My pride is shattered. So all I can do is begin to swim back to the boat as it circles around to get the rope. And as I do that, a bad day got worse. I hear these cat calls and these whistles and a girl shout, nice butt. Which was odd for me to hear because I've been told my whole life leading up to that point that I didn't have a butt. So I was like, well, maybe there's a silver lining. This is kind of great, you know? Thanks, ladies. 
And, uh, and, and then, but they kept saying it over and over as I swam. And so as I finally got to the swim deck of the boat, I looked back over my shoulder. And in my peripheral vision, I saw this white shiny thing right behind me. And I realized that my booty was acting more like a buoy floating on top of the water for all to see. Here's what had happened. I'm not the only one that experienced a great fall. Apparently when I went down, my pants <laughs> went with me and were around my ankles and I was able to swim back to the boat without even realizing it. And I was flashing all of Lake Chelan. Pride sucks. Pride sucks. The problem is pride. Pride is a big problem. So now we gotta ask ourselves, if we're talking about pride and pride is a problem, why is pride a problem? And the first answer to that is because God hates it. Throughout scripture, we see over and over and over again that God hates pride. First Peter 5, second half of verse 5 says, God opposes the proud. So think about that. He stands in opposition to it, has great disdain, can't stand. God hates pride. He's opposed to the proud. And again, we see, we see that theme, that verbiage of, of um, disliking pride all throughout the scriptures. So then we got to ask ourselves, well, why? Why does God hate pride? So I think you're going to be able to finish this sentence for me. Pride comes before the pride comes before the fall. We've all heard that before. Comes out of an idea in one of the Proverbs. Pride certainly came before my great fall. It was incredibly embarrassing. Why does God hate pride? Because pride ultimately leads to a fall. And when we fall, we get hurt. And God hates anything that hurts his children. Catch that. This is not so much about God being on an ego trip. It's more about God being on a rescue mission. That God isn't on some ego trip where he's beating his chest and I am God and I'm almighty and you must humble yourself before me because I'm in charge. That is, if that's the picture of God you have, I'm here to tell you today it is not an accurate picture. It is not the heart of the Father that he is trying to communicate to us throughout the scriptures. God hates anything that hurts his children. And he knows that pride ultimately leads to a fall which hurts really bad. And so like any loving dad would do, he's trying to teach us, his children, how to avoid the pain associated with a fall. And I think that's so important that we start there and that we understand that and get this picture of the heart of God because if we understand the heart of God, it begins to change all the things we hear and all the ways we think and how we interpret the scriptures because now it's less about do this, don't do that. And it's more about, Dad, what are you trying to say to me right now? What do you want me to know? Because the heart of God is for us to experience the fullness of life that he created us for. And when we fall, we experience pain and that's the opposite of the fullness that he has intended for us. And so today we are gonna jump into a story that Jesus told. It's in Luke chapter 18, Dr. Luke, the Gospel of Luke. It starts in verse nine. And we've got two characters that are being talked about here. And you'll see that as is sometimes uh, typical with Jesus' teaching, it's the unlikely one that ends up being the hero of the story. So we're in Luke chapter 18. You can follow along on the screen or however else you like to read the Bible. Starting with verse nine. And it says, and he, he being Jesus, 
also told this parable to some people. So let's stop there for a second. He's talking to a crowd, but he's not talking to everybody. He zeroes in and he's talking to a certain group of people. Who were these people? These people were people that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So catch this. He's talking to a specific group of people within a crowd that viewed themselves, who trusted themselves for righteousness. Whatever they had done, whatever they had accomplished, their good behavior, their right beliefs, the religion they were attached to, their ethnicity, the nation that they were born into, whatever it was, these people trusted in themselves and saw themselves as at least slightly better than others, which it says here, they viewed with contempt. I can't stand those people. I'm way better because I do this and they're down here, okay? So that's the setting. Jesus is speaking to some people that trust in themselves for their righteousness and hold other people in contempt. And so what does Jesus say to those some people? In verse 10, he says this. Two men went up into a temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. We've touched on this if you've been here the last couple weeks, um, the idea of a Pharisee and a tax collector. So real quick, Pharisee, good guy, tax collector, bad guy. Pharisee would be like a pastor of a church. He's been on staff of church this day, even probably a higher criteria. Loved God, followed his commandments, did his best to be an upstanding citizen in society. By the age of 12, this individual would have memorized every word of every chapter of the first five books of the Old Covenant. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He would have memorized it all by the age of 12. This is a person that loved and feared God. It should be the good guy. Tax collector, the bad guy. He's a thief, he's a robber, he's a Benedict Arnold. He's a betrayer of his people. It's a Jewish person that works for the Roman government, which occupies the Jewish land. Not only that, not only does he work for the enemy, he collects taxes from the Jewish people to pay the enemy. And not only that, but he collects more than he should and lines his own pocket and becomes wealthy. He is hated, he is despised, he is viewed with absolute contempt. So we've got two characters, a good guy and a bad guy. Here we go. Verse 11, the Pharisee, good guy, stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers. And then it's as if he looks over his shoulder with disdain toward that tax collector and says, especially that tax collector. And then he goes on to give God a resume of sorts of why he's not like these people. Because I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on all that I have, on all that I get. So I just want to stop and, and, and look at this picture for a second. This guy that's supposed to be the good guy of the story, God or Jesus is clearly pointing out as he talks to this crowd that this individual in some way, shape, or form thinks that he is better than all these other people, that he has done certain things in his life to get, he's leveled up and they're left down there. And he says to God, look at me, I tithe, I fast, I'm a good guy and I can't stand those people. And as I was preparing for this message, if I'm totally honest, I've, heard, I've read this story a lot of times before and other stories like it. And it's really hard for me to self-identify with the Pharisee. I quickly am like, what a jerk. 
This is what we're not supposed to be like, right? I don't want to be like that. And so as I was preparing to speak to you guys today, I was praying a prayer, and it's become a very common prayer, a daily prayer for me over the last year or so. And it's simply this. God, what are you doing, and what do you want me to know? As I look at this, God, what are you doing, and what do you want me to know? And because I was preparing to share with you guys, the third part of that prayer was, what do you want Arbor to know? And so I'm I'm researching and I'm praying and kind of putting my notes together. And Tuesday afternoon, a buddy of mine called and said, hey, can you get together for happy hour? Sure. So I drove down to Tipsy Cow and and met with my buddy. And he had something very specific he wanted to talk about. So a little bit of context. Um, This is my best friend. We've been friends for a very long time. And years ago, one of our other very good friends, healthy guy, mid-30s, love God, a leader of leaders, an incredible guy, one of those guys with a Midas touch, like whatever he put his hands to succeeded. And we all were candidly envious of him, amazing guy. But out of nowhere, one day at a summer barbecue, had a massive stroke, a nearly catastrophic stroke. To this day, he has not been able to fully recover. He, uh, in the last four to five years, has never been able to go back to work. Uh, significantly limited in his speech and his cognition and his mobility. It's wreaked havoc on him because of that. And because he hasn't been able to go back to work, they had to sell their house. They had to move. They have three kids. His wife has to take care of three kids, a disabled husband. And now she was a full-time mom. She has to go back to work and try and make ends meet. It's been a really tough situation. To make things worse, at the time of this happening, he had started a business with one of our other friends. They were business partners. And um, it was during a tough time in the market and compounded with a tough time in the market, this guy's out for a year. And so at one point, the business partner got a hold of my buddy's wife and said, hey, we need to talk. We either need to dissolve this company or we need to sell it. You know, we can't keep going the way it is. So they agreed to sell it. And I think she probably, like, we all were really good friends. She probably didn't think she needed to hire an attorney and go through the paperwork with a fine-tooth comb. She's at her wit's end just trying to keep things together. So she signs some papers, and away they go. As it turns out, they sell the company. Partner B walks away with 100% of the proceeds. And not only does he do that, but he goes back to work for these other people and continues to have a wage doing that. Our buddy that has a stroke, his family got nothing. And not only that, but because he can't work, they laid him off. He no longer has health insurance. And it's been a really, really, really rough road. And so my buddy and I were talking about this because we've walked through this situation with this family over the last four to five years. Partner B, in the last couple months, out of nowhere, has re- and wants to be helpful, which you think is a good thing. But for us, it's like, oh, that's convenient. You just kind of do this thing and hose this family, and now you want to come in and be Prince Charming and save the day and do all these things to help out. And you got no context, bro. You can't do that. And if I'm totally honest, we were, we've been very annoyed, and we were getting together kind of just venting and sharing our frustration with that. But do you remember as I started this story, I said, I prayed this prayer, God, what are you doing and what do you want me to know? And I have a hard time self-identifying with this Pharisee. The Holy Spirit spoke to me so clear and so loud in that moment as I was sitting at Tipsy Cow with my buddy talking about this. He said, hey, Garrett, 
Since when did you start holding people to a standard I don't hold you to? Oh, so I tried to let that sit in for a second as we're talking. This is happening like real time. We're talking and I'm hearing this like come down into my heart. Like, oh my gosh. And then the next thing he said was, what would this guy have to do in order to find favor with you guys? Like he's trying. He's trying to make it right. He's trying to reenter. He's trying to be helpful. And you guys, he doesn't stand a chance with you guys. There's no way you're even letting him in. What would he have to do to get right with you? And so I told my buddy, I was like, dude, while we're talking, this is just hitting me like a ton of bricks. And my buddy instantly agreed. We, we repented at Tipsy Cow. We're like having this moment in the bar, like, oh my gosh, we are the Pharisee. And in that moment, through God's great grace, he said, Garrett, when I'm talking to some people, maybe you should look in the mirror and say, is there perhaps some people somewhere inside of yourself? Because over time, Spiritual pride has snuck in, and you don't even see it anymore. You read these stories, and they're the same old stories you've heard time and time again. So here's what I want to invite you guys into in our remaining minutes together, is that would you hear this story? Would you look at Scripture and use it as a spiritual mirror of, as, of sorts? And, and, and look at your reflection and say, as Jesus is talking to some people, is there any some people somewhere inside of me? Even though I may not relate to this Pharisee, is there some of this inside me? Because I was really caught off guard and realized, man, not only do I view people in contempt, but I trust in myself for righteousness because I have done these things, I've walked family, I've done all this stuff, and he hasn't. And it's exactly the story we're reading here. The other part about this is as we think about it, so there's, there's some of this overt pride, but then there's a flip side of it. I'll, re, I'll just refer to that as reverse spiritual pride. And this would be those of us that, and it's probably the majority of us, if we're honest, that we don't wake up feeling like we got it all together, we got it going on, look at me, I do all this good stuff, I'm good. We, on the other hand, wake up in the morning feeling like, whew, here we go again, another day. I gotta dig deep. I don't feel like I got what it takes. I don't know what's coming. I don't know if I can handle it. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to convince ourselves, trying to convince others, ultimately trying to convince God that we're okay. That would be reverse spiritual pride. And here's what happens with both of those, is that they both come to the same center, the same root cause, and it's me. They both begin with me. I'm good enough, I'm not good enough. I've done enough, I haven't done enough. God blessed me, God blessed other people, not me. It's all inward focused instead of upward focused. And I think the point that Jesus is trying to make in this illustration of the Pharisee is that when we're full of ourselves, there's no room left for God. And so he continues, and he jumps in, Jesus jumps into verse 13, and we turn our gaze from the Pharisee now to the tax collector. And here's what he says in verse 13 about the tax collector. But the tax collector standing some distance away. So this guy wasn't even able to get all the way into the temple. He's standing back. And he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest. This is a broken man that understands his predicament is dire. 
he's hopeless. And he's not even worthy to get all the way to the temple. He doesn't even have the strength to lift up his eyes because he's just standing there broken before God. And he's beating his chest. And what does he say? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What I think is so interesting about this is if you look into the customs of the time and the Jewish law, the law actually did provide a way for this tax collector to be redeemed, to be justified. And it was this. The law said that he could be justified if he repaid every penny of every dollar he had ever collected from people. Plus 20%. Plus 20%. Who could do that? Who could do that? The years and years and years he's been doing that, he would have to have enough money put away to pay everybody back plus a 20% kicker. This guy knows there's not a chance. It ain't happening. Even though there's a provision to make me whole, I can never get there. And this is complete uh, speculation. But even if he could, do you think his people would actually accept him back into the fold? Probably not. There's no chance for this guy. And so he stands broken before God and says, please have mercy on me, a sinner. So what happens? Jesus wraps up his story in verse 14. He says to the people, I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. And here's Jesus' point. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. When we empty ourselves, we can begin to experience the fullness of God. When we're full of ourselves, there's no room left for God. But when we empty ourselves, we can begin to experience the fullness of God. And it's this interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? If if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus at all, you've heard these things before, like when you are weak, then you are made strong. When you humble yourself, you will be exalted. When you empty yourself, you will be filled. How how does that work? It's completely counterintuitive and certainly counterculture. It's the opposite of everything we're taught from the day we're born on how to survive, how to flourish, how to succeed in life. But here's the thing. It's not about a God who's on an ego trip. It's about the heart of a dad that wants you to experience the fullness of life that he intended for you. And he knows that pride comes before the fall. And falling hurts. And he, hurt, he hates you getting hurt. He is opposed to anything that hurts you. And that's why he hates pride. It's an incredible view of a heart of a deeply loving, compassionate, merciful God. And I hope it settles in. And I hope you take a moment to just look inside yourself and say, is there any part of me that maybe has gotten used to, for whatever reason, routine or whatever, I've heard this story before, but is there a part of me that God's speaking to? What is he saying to me? If you're anything like me, He's gonna take you at your word, at your request, and he's gonna speak to you, and he's gonna show you. And sure, sometimes the truth hurts. We've heard the most loving thing someone can do is tell you the truth, right? 
I think the most loving thing God can do is tell you the truth. And it didn't feel good to realize I'm a pastor sitting in a restaurant completely tearing someone down. It didn't feel good to realize I was doing that. But you know what? I would rather recognize it and let that situation be redeemed than just continue to walk through life aloof to that and continue doing that stuff and just think I'm okay and comfortable where I'm at. Because what that means is that God has more for me that there's more stuff, more fullness of life that he has. And that's what he has for you. And that's why I think Jesus would undo spiritual pride because it gets in the way of us experiencing the fullness of life that he has for us. And so we're gonna take some time here at the end of the service. We've left, we've left some time to respond to what we've heard. And there's a lot of different ways that we can respond. The band's gonna come up and continue to lead us in worship. They're gonna play three songs and the words will be on the screen. So one of the ways you can respond is simply through singing along to the prayers that are up on the screen. You might have noticed there's a table of candles in front of me and you can come light one of these as a symbol of prayer you're sending up to heaven, whether it's for you or for somebody else. Communion tables on both sides of the room, bread and juice that represent the body of Christ that was broken for us the blood of Christ that was spilled on our behalf. And then at the back where the cross is, there will be members of our prayer team that would love to spend some time praying with you, interceding on your behalf. And uh, one of the suggestions that isn't, isn't on the screen that I'd like to give you or invite you to is maybe just assume a position of humility. Maybe where you're at, as the music plays, find your way to your knees. And like the tax collector who couldn't lift his eyes up to heaven, just say, God, what are you doing and what do you want me to know? What are you doing, God? What do you want me to know? And I believe that he loves you so much that he will speak to you and he will answer that prayer. So let's go ahead and enter into this time of response now. <laughs>